Hello, listeners. Welcome back to VoiceOver Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is Monday, February 27th, 2023. Today's featured author, Nick Trenton, has gathered information from all fields, such as psychology, counseling, behavior science, evolutionary biology, even Buddhism and Stoicism, to give you the tools for emotional success and the daily happiness and calm you seek. All this included in his new book, Calm Your Emotions. And today's episode is the chapter-by-chapter preview of this book. Thanks for tuning in. This is Calm Your Emotions by Nick Trenton. Chapter 1. Our Volatile Emotions and Why They Reign Supreme Though I wasn't the best student in school, I was able to develop a close friendship with my high school English teacher, Mr. Locke. Not sure why he took an interest in me, but I suppose a convenient narrative is that he's the reason I ended up as a writer, and I have him to thank for all of it. Unfortunately, that would be false to say, as it's not remotely what we talked about most of the time. Throughout the whole year, it was enlightening to ask him about the books we were reading for class and what he actually thought about them. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer? Overrated. The Great Gatsby? His favorite of all time. Of Mice and Men? He preferred the movie. However, things got really interesting when the end of the year drew close, and he started to open up about the people in my class, my peers. Of course, this was a dream come true for me. An adult willing to gossip with me about my fellow students. Looking back, it was wildly inappropriate for Mr. Locke to engage in such topics with me, but it's not like the teachers weren't doing it amongst themselves anyway. He let me in on a little secret of his. Whenever he had to give negative feedback, he would always make sure to try to build up the individual student a couple days before. He would do this to make sure their self-esteem, at least in the realm of his class, was sufficiently high, such that his negative feedback wouldn't have as big of an impact. He wanted students to not take things so personally and to be able to separate his comments on their work from them as a person. Too many students in the past had received his feedback in less than ideal ways. He wanted them to hear... This paper could use work, not you need work. My teenage mind was blown away, and I told him that he was so clever to use Jedi mind tricks on his students. He told me there were a few students he would do this on more than others because he felt they had low self-esteem or he knew they were being bullied outside of his class. My adult mind still admires him and thinks that he had tremendous insight into how people worked, especially his future adults, who were still figuring themselves out and had fragile egos. It wasn't until much later that I realized he was helping students gain emotional resilience through raising their self-esteem. Self-esteem is an essential component of emotional resilience, and is often deemed the immune system of emotions. When it's high, you can handle what's thrown your way, and when it's low, 
you are more likely to collapse under scrutiny. Emotional resilience is a trait that's like the background music in a movie. When it's there, you don't notice it. And it seems that scenes just fit together without a hitch. However, if it's missing, suddenly words are taken the wrong way, everything feels wrong, and the scene falls apart. In other words, you notice it when you need it, but not when you don't. Therein lies the conundrum of resilience, emotional stability, and strength in the face of tragedy and despair. How do you get it before you need it? And how do you know if you don't have it? The ugly truth is that none of us... Chapter 2. The Keys to Eliminating Emotional Triggers Emily is having a brilliant day out with her family. They're at a theme park for the day. The sun is shining, and she's in an excited, carefree mood. Her mother asks them to pose, snaps a picture, and then shows Emily the photo. Cool. Looks great, says Emily. But, in fact, from that moment, her mood starts on a steady downward spiral, and in an hour, she's feeling miserable. We've all heard it, and we've all felt it, a small provocation that can send our emotions spiraling in a direction that we didn't anticipate and that, objectively, shouldn't have any impact whatsoever. This could be that one song that reminds you of something extremely traumatic, or maybe that one person you don't see often enough, but when you do, your emotions are out of control. It could even be mentioning a single word, such as a name or the word fat that is the tip of the iceberg in terms of what it represents to you. For Emily, the photo made her think of a certain cascade of thoughts. She saw how old her father looked in the photo and realized all at once that this just may be the last time they get to come to this theme park as a family. This sets her off thinking about the death of her grandfather the year before, and in no time, seconds even, she's unhappily mulling over the idea of death itself and her own mortality, and she even finds herself wondering, what's the point of it all if everyone you love will eventually disappear? These are emotional triggers, things that elicit an immediate emotional response. Like the trigger on a gun it can be small and its movement slight, but the result of firing that emotional gun can be devastating. There are positive and negative triggers, but we don't need help with positive ones. Some can lead to positive emotions, like discovering an item from your childhood that you immediately associate with happiness or love. It boils down to something you have a special sensitivity to, and it can impact you for the entire day or even weak. With only a few words, you're feeling entirely off-center and fall into a pit of anxiety, depression, guilt, or shame. Why are we so deeply affected by something that we rationally know should not affect us as badly as it does? Can we be logical creatures that aren't ruled by our emotions? Yes and no. We have emotional triggers because we've lived, struggled, and come of age. Our triggers are proof of our experience. 
No matter how lucky you've been in life, you've had moments of hardship and trauma you never want to experience again. Things that happen in the past, especially when we were children, are often ingrained deep into our minds. We may not have been able to deal with the pain or suffering or embarrassment that we felt when we were younger, so we suppress it. In fact, that's the logical part. We work hard to avoid, deny, or ignore things to keep our days pain and worry-free. And years later, when we're adults, reminders of our pain can bring those feelings screaming back. It's not productive to go completely down the Sigmund Freud route and assume that all of your adult pains are the result of childhood traumas. But we can say... Chapter 3. Recognize, respond to, and regulate the chaos in your brain. Alex is at his girlfriend's house when she steps out for a moment and he notices her phone ping. He can't help but see the message that flashes on the screen. He doesn't read it but he notices the long string of pink heart emojis it ends in. His girlfriend comes back into the room, and he scowls at her. Within the next five minutes, Alex's reaction can only be described as a meltdown. He yells out in anger, makes vicious accusations, and then leaves in a ferocious tantrum, announcing that the relationship is over. That's scenario one. Scenario 2 starts the same way, but ends completely differently. Alex sees the message and instantly notices his knee-jerk reaction. He feels a powerful flood of emotions, anger, jealousy, hurt, fear, disgust. But he takes a deep breath and tries to think. Aware that he's having this response, i.e. not completely flooded with the response, he decides to talk to his girlfriend the moment she comes in. He raises it with her calmly and neutrally. The girlfriend checks her phone and laughs. It's my sister. She's telling me about this casserole she made. Here, look, she sent a photo. What can I say? She loves food more than she loves me. Our emotions are not always reliable. Recall that they're geared toward ensuring the survival of our species, but that's a goal with somewhat lesser priority in modern daily life. And even if, unlike Alex above, we're correct in our appraisal and our emotions are right, it still doesn't mean that we need to submit to them and have them run our lives. Had Alex instead discovered his worst fear, for example, it would still be in his best interest to keep his cool and stay in control. We already know that suppressing emotions is not the answer, and that you should allow yourself to feel even your darkest of feelings so that you can release them. But there is a time and a place for indulging in all the emotional needs we have discussed, and sometimes you may just not be in the right situation to do so. So, while you are entitled to feel angry and even vengeful, it's not a good idea to actually express that emotion, especially if expressing it would mean getting out of your car and strangling the person who's just stolen your parking spot. Regulating your emotions means dealing with your emotional needs in a healthy and socially acceptable way. This chapter will explain how you can release your emotions in ways that won't make you embark on a downward spiral. Emotions are a constant part of our lives. 
every minute of every day, we will feel something, and our emotions can change in an instant. There are highs and lows that you experience every day, and how you deal with them can significantly affect your mental state and well-being. Your ability to regulate the vast number of emotions that you feel also affects how the people in your life perceive you. When you're caught up in these moments, it can be difficult to regulate your emotions and think of the consequences, but the more you do it, the more it becomes habitual. The first and foremost way of thinking about emotional resilience and calm is the react versus response model. It is succinctly summed. Chapter 4. Figuring out and replacing your emotional patterns. So far, we've talked about the purpose of emotions, common triggers, and the emotional needs that underlie them, and some ways to respond and regulate in healthier ways. These all constitute important knowledge about your inner workings, but at some level, they're just band-aids that we can apply over the emotional pain or discomfort you feel. The true cure to emotional haphazardness is self-awareness and understanding the origins of your emotions. It isn't just about why you feel a certain way, but also about how that feeling took root in the first place. Only when you understand the entire sequence of events from outside, trigger, to inside, emotional need, to outside again, coping mechanism, can you hope to cut the cycle short? In the examples we've looked at so far, there's been a pretty distinct and clear-cut episode or event that we can draw a box around. But try to imagine that the behavior of any one of these hypothetical people is actually a part of a broader pattern. It may seem obvious what the problem is and how to fix it when looking at these fictional stories from the outside in. But when it comes to your own life, things all of a sudden seem much, much murkier. That's only because we are unconscious and behaving habitually. Unconscious, habitual behavior can be, for all intents and purposes, invisible. We do something because, well, we've always done it. There is no why. In fact, you could argue that if you do something often enough, it starts to be indistinguishable from your personality or character. But it isn't. If you've ever felt like your own behavior was a mystery to you, or struggled to imagine how else you could possibly behave, then that's a good sign that you could use more awareness. Sometimes we find ourselves falling into a loop where we're simply in an autopilot state of acting and thinking, which will always lead to undesirable outcomes. Your feelings get hurt. You shout and react, and you compound your negative feelings with guilt and shame. You might think you're engaging in the framework of emotional regulation, and you might think that you're responding rather than reacting, but... How can you know? These automated actions are very difficult to see in the heat of the moment because we're so used to doing them without thinking. This is why building self-awareness and understanding the patterns of your thought and behavior are essential for emotional resilience. Without this, 
you'll only be able to address the symptoms and not the cause. There are a few tools for this, and they emulate talk therapy in some ways because they force you to really analyze your actions and answer questions that you'd rather not. You'll recognize a few elements of these tools from prior chapters, but there's always a different perspective in each new tool that can assist with self-awareness. Think of yourself as developing an inventory of different tools or lenses through which to view your own situation. The ABC Loop If you went to the doctor and told her that you were breaking out in hives, she would look you over and probably try... Chapter 5. The Emotional Immune System Let's return to an example we explored in the last chapter, worrying about whether your spouse's family would judge you when they come to visit for the holidays. Let's be honest, there are indeed judgmental people out there in the world, and it's wholly possible that people may be unkind and unfair in their appraisal of you. However, let's imagine that you have judgmental in-laws, but also have a rock-solid sense of self-esteem. You notice them making a few disparaging remarks about the state of your sofa, or that their TV is nicer. But instead of getting carried away with thoughts like, they think they're better than me, or trying to fight back by judging them in return, you don't react. You remind yourself that you're a good person and that you like yourself, that you have made choices that you're largely proud of, that you like your life and have plenty to be grateful for, and that even though you have some flaws and aren't perfect, you're doing your best and there really isn't any problem. Or, perhaps the in-laws were never judging you in the first place. With a healthy self-esteem, you're not overly sensitive to rejection and liable to imagine insults when there aren't any. You convey an attitude of being comfortable with who you are, and people respond well. In either case, your self-esteem has acted as a kind of psychological immune system and helped you moderate the potentially damaging effects of negative thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. In just the same way as a strong immune system protects your body from attacks, your self-esteem will help you defend against undermining thoughts and feelings and behaviors that might work against you. In this case, instead of acting defensive and being icy with your in-laws, you're relaxed and friendly with them, avoiding all conflict, and sparing yourself the stress of comparing your life to theirs. When self-esteem, and not ego, is present, it determines how you feel about yourself, your self-talk narratives, and your baseline of resilience. Someone who feels good about themselves is even-keeled and calm, even in the face of failure, because they know they are a three-dimensional being with lots of positive traits and skills. And, of course, if you have higher self-esteem, your emotional needs are already more satisfied. Because you know what you need, a side effect of heightened self-awareness, and because you have faith in your own abilities to meet those needs, you're more likely to actually succeed in that regard. This also means that fewer things will trigger you, or... At least it will take more powerful triggers to affect you. Let's start with low self-esteem, and then we can work our way to healthy self-esteem. 
This is the feeling that you aren't good enough, that you're inadequate, that you'll be judged by others, and that others will reject you for being who you are. It's a feeling of constant insecurity in yourself and being terrified that others will agree with you. Many of our emotional needs and insecurities stem from this point, that you're somehow less than others. Not that you've done wrong exactly, but that you are wrong. This creates an inevitable dynamic where you're always seeking to be accepted and seen as equal to others. An example of this is a study by Kichi Onoda of Shimani University in Japan. His study found that when our self- Chapter 6. Preventative Care As we've discussed, and you've no doubt noticed from your own life, the brain maintains a strong negativity bias. This is just the way it is, like having a house that constantly gets dirty and needs to constantly be cleaned. Life is filled with challenges, unknowns, and other people's decisions that affect us, whether we like it or not. While we all know we should tidy the house, brush our teeth, and clear our inbox every day, how many of us make conscious efforts to do psychological housekeeping to make sure we're staying on top of potential negativity? Our continued survival depends on our ability to keep harmful elements at bay as much as possible. Dangerous encounters, food one is allergic to, toxic people, or situations to avoid, and so forth. But because neural activity in response to negative signals is so strong, it can cease being an effective survival mechanism and become an obstacle to your emotional stability and overall happiness. We've gone over many techniques and tools for keeping it together and even keeled in the face of emotional triggers and feelings of impending doom. But what about the everyday ways in which this negativity bias affects us? Part of the battle in staying even with your emotions is to actively battle this instinct and generate your own positivity. To a lot of us, that's no small task. Negativity is more accumulative than positivity, piling up in the psyche with seemingly little effort. It's easy for the brain to lie back and let fears, terrors, and anxieties unfold one after the other. When they get to a certain mass, negativity bias starts to feel like an anchor that can't be overcome. That is, unless we deliberately, constantly make the choice to cultivate positivity. This is important. It doesn't happen by itself, in just the same way as your house won't clean itself. We tend to characterize positivity as something that requires more labor an exhaustive act that might not even make a significant dent in our negativity in the end. But in reality, positivity is a force that pays off, even when we take small steps to bring it about. It's far easier to inject positivity into our lives and emotions than our negativity would have us think. Improving your emotional response and coping mechanisms will always be effective, but for everyday life. It's best to have some strategies that aren't necessarily developed in crisis mode. Taking preventative measures will keep you healthy and grounded and form a solid foundation that eases the strain of emergencies.
write it out. Keeping journals is a part of almost any facet of modern life you can think of. Business, art, information gathering, and, of course, news. It's not a stretch to understand its service in the maintenance of ourselves and our mental health. We've already covered how it can help you bring awareness to your gratitude and savoring practices. A couple more journal techniques are particularly helpful in your quest for emotional calm. Worry journals are an element of cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, a long-time aid in treating emotional disorders. They've also been used in sleep therapy for subjects who experience anxiety. The goal of the worry... Hope you enjoyed this episode of VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. We'd appreciate it if you'd leave a rating or a review on whatever platform you found this episode. Also, learn more about the author Nick Trenton at bit.ly slash Nick Trenton. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.